All right, so let's look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. The first section in Isaiah is chapter 1 through 5, which is kind of an introductory section. Chapter 6, if you look ahead in Isaiah, is where Isaiah gets his calling. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, and he, he calls Isaiah then. So this is all kind of prefatory material. But in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, we get, as some commentators describe, the whole book of Isaiah in a nutshell. And we're going to see kind of what that means in a second here. And not only that, but I think we also find the solution to all the world's problems. Right? If you've been paying attention to the news for the last several hundred months, you've noticed that things aren't going great. Right? And sometimes you can get anxious about that. You think, well, only if, if this guy would stop doing that or if these people would start doing this. Well, maybe. But I can tell you what the solution to all the unhappy situations in the world are. And the only solution that's going to be. But let's get through, uh, let's walk through together our passage this morning. Here in general is what we're looking at. You can kind of see that Isaiah's using, over the course of this chapter, a kind of a courtroom scene. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, he raises the general charges against his people. This is a prophecy, as you can see in verse 1, against Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this gets a little bit tricky because you've got Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. What are the relationship of these three places? So, throughout the Old Testament, Israel will refer to the whole nation of Israel, which is all 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Abraham, right? So, all 12 tribes. But there was a civil war and they split up and 10 of them, the northern 10, became, this is tricky, Israel. And the southern two became a separate nation called Judah. Now the northern ten, when this is being written, are right on the edge of being wiped out by Assyria, the empire of Assyria in about 40 years after Isaiah begins to write. Assyria is going to come and take that entire nation away. And they, they disappear from the pages of history. They're gone. Right? So Judah now is left. But as we're going to talk about in a little bit, Judah is a pretty special little nation state. And Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. All right? So Isaiah is writing to Judah now. Technically, the better of the two groups, the southern group, is kind of better, more godly. But as you can see, they're in a bad place right now. So the passage opens up with God bringing his beloved people to court with the general charges of, as we see in verse 4, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, and are utterly estranged from him. So the general charges are they've got a lot of iniquity and they're forsaking the Lord. Verse 5 begins laying out some of the evidence for this. And we can see, we'll just pick up reading in verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. What's he talking about? He's not talking about a physical body. He's talking about the Judah society. The evidence for their rebellion against God, the consequence when people leave God's way, is, the, is society-wide troubles. 
And I think we have some experience with this, where almost every place you look in society right now, you feel like, ugh, it's corrupt, it's wrong, it's not right. And this is what he's describing here. Society-wide troubles, panic within, and then threats without. Verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land. So this is the evidence for the charges. Now look over to verse 10. Verses 10 to 17 lay out specific charges. So the first couple of verses are sort of like the opening scene of the court. We're going to prove to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that are, uh, you know, so and so. And then the evidence and now specific charges, verses 10 to 17. The specific charges can be summed up best in verse 13. Look at the, just the last line of verse 13, where the Lord says through Isaiah, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So you may recall as Mike was reading this, like for example, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my court? Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me, your new moons and Sabbaths, right? So God is sick of their worship of Him. Like God commanded Sabbath. God commanded incense. God commanded sacrifices. But He's sick of it because it's mixed with iniquity. I, he says, I cannot stand. I cannot endure it. I am disgusted by it. I am sick. I've had it to hear with your iniquity mixed in with your solemn assemblies. Right, so... You get a quick sense in here about how God feels about injustice, right? He hates violence and exploitation, the quiet collusion of the greedy against the poor. He hates these things in a society. But what, but what he just cannot flat out, cannot endure, is those things coming from his people, those people who claim to be his. He cannot endure when they are participating in the society-wide exploitation of the oppressed, the disadvantaged, and the poor. And, and why does this bother God so much? Because He called His people to be the light of the world. When He called them and He shone the light of His glory on them, gave them His Word, gave them His law, He lit them up to be the bearers of the knowledge of His glory that was going to fill the earth someday, like the waters cover the sea. God wanted them to be the light of the world. But as we saw last week, what did they want to do? They wanted to get the idols of other people and, and maybe utilize the local resources to get their will done. Baal and Asherah and Moloch. And they wanted to be just like all the other nations. They wanted a king like the other nations. But the problem is, all other paths for a society, go to the same end in, in place. It always ends up in exploitative injustice and society-wide distress. Socialism, capitalism, communism, nationalism, humanism, scientific rationalism, democracy, republics, Sharia law, all of it ends up in the same place. Sure, some of them produce better experiences for a few of the people for a while, but they all end up in the same place. That's not the way God wanted His people to live. That's not what He wanted His people and their place to be like. God wanted His people to walk in the light and to be a light. Now Judah, Judah's in an interesting spot because they, they 
had been, they had been enjoying a season of prosperity separate from God. They finally got rid of God, right? They'd forsaken Him, and they were enjoying a season of prosperity. But the problem is, right, prosperity without God fosters what? Pride, arrogance, selfishness. You get less and less interested in the things of God and less and less interested in other people and the needs of the poor. Right, look what I did. Don't you touch it. The other thing about prosperity separated from God is that it invites threats and it makes you very anxious about what you have right how old does your car have to be for you to park right next to the cart return at the grocery store right because mm. when you get a new car what you want to you want a whole parking spot on every side right and you want to park equidistant from all cart returns but then at some point, right, there's a process, and at some point it actually is like desirable to park next to the cart returns because then you can just load up your groceries and shove the cart in, right? So there's a big transition here. Judah's in this place of like, they just got the shiny new life that they thought they always wanted. And so they're very anxious to preserve it. And they're, they're, they want to, you know, they want to keep the poor people who want what's theirs, or the beggars. No, 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 I want to keep mine. A, but a serious growing, and so they're feeling threatened and they're feeling anxious, about others. So here's the situation. This is what God is describing here. They don't love God and they don't love their neighbors. Do those commands sound familiar? Right? They don't love God. They don't love their neighbors. They're rotten inside and the enemies are coming. So this is the situation here that God is laying out. And so we come to verses 18 to 20 where God produces a surprising verdict. If you look at the end of verse 20, says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here is the verdict. And here's the verdict. God says in verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Come on here and let's make the choice. The verdict is actually a choice, which is a great surprise. Usually the verdict is you're sentenced to punish, punishment or you're let go for free. But the verdict is a choice. Come and eat or be eaten. What does he say in verse 18? Come, let's make our choice, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you, are, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. That's my verdict. That's what the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God presents them with a choice. The, the rest of our passage, verses 21 through the end of through chapter 2, verse 5, describes where those choices are going to go. So we try to help make an informed decision here. So first of all, God encourages them to repent and to be washed clean. Come, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And that is the offer that he extends to his people. And this is nothing less than a restart. A start over, God's saying. All of your injustice, all of your oppression, all of your forsaking me, all of the estrangement, all of your ignorance and folly, all of it. Set it all aside. Let's restart. Right? Because with this God, there is always hope. Right, you, might, you look at what 
Judah has done, and you think there's no hope for them. They deserve to be punished, and they absolutely do, but there is always hope, and God is willing to forgive them and bring them back. And then look over to chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. This is where that path of repentance and obedience is going to take God's people. Listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Right? Watch the motion here. The whole world is going to come to the Lord and then we're going to see the word of the Lord go out to rule the whole world. So all the nations come to it and many people will come and say, Let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now, now the out, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall no longer lift sword up against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." If God's people were to repent and begin to obey him and to walk in his light, God was going to bring about this great hope that the whole world would come to the Lord in Judah, in Jerusalem, and that the Lord's word would go out and rule the whole world. And in this way, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. That's the plan if they will do this. But it's a choice, right? So back in chapter 1, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. But I want you to hear something extraordinary here. That, that sounds pretty bad, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't want that. But this isn't just for punishment. Isaiah goes on to explain, verses 21 to 31 here. Look at verse 21. This is all leading to an, another opportunity. He says, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. So the city was formerly faithful. And then look down to verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lie. So she's going to have her injustice removed. And then verse 26. I will restore your judges as at the first, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city again. So, some of the people will repent, as he says in verse 27, and some of them will be removed, and in that way the city will be purified, but we're going to end up as a faithful city again. We're going to end up in chapter 2, verse 2 again. In the latter days, this is going to happen. Only by a much longer and less enjoyable route for Judah. God's hope, the hope that he has planned and has promised, is going to happen. Either you can come on and enjoy the route, enjoy the journey, or it's going to be a little more painful, but we're going to get there in the end. And that's why this is really a summation of the message of Isaiah. You're going to read a lot of uh, Isaiah prophesying against injustice and predicting judgment that's going to come on God's people. And, and everywhere you're going to see this invitation to repent. But whether they repent or they don't repent, the hope that God has promised is not in jeopardy. So you can either repent now and obey and get on board and we're going to go there or you can continue to rebel and I will purify the snot out of you and then with a few who remain, we're going to do it again and we're going to get there. 
And God's hope is certain and sure. God's plan will still happen. So here's kind of the point of this passage. God wants His children to worship Him and to do good. They're both things, right? I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly, but I love when you're doing good and you're worshiping me. That's great. God wants His people to, wants His children to worship Him and do what's good. All right. So what does this mean for us today? And, and right now I want to interject something. We're going to talk for a second about how do we apply Old Testament stuff that was meant for them then, right, for Judah. How do we apply that to our lives today? And the short answer is application to, to us has to run through Jesus. We can't just... Now, you can, right? You can open Calvin and Hobbes, or you can open Farside and Garfield and, and find things that you go, oh, you know what? That's applicable to my life, even, right? You can find things here that apply. Like you might say, oh, this is, what, this is what happens when a society is unjust and corrupt and it's troubled. Oh, we need our society to be just. Okay, good, yes. But that's not going to bring about the latter days where God's king sits enthroned and proclaims the law of the Lord across the land. That's, that's not going to happen there. You might say, I feel really bad. I'm not doing justice. I'm not concerned for the plight of the poor. And I can see that this is something that God is interested in. And I should do that. And that's good. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about you and me just fixing our lives. That's not going to bring about God's king, God's priest cleansing the temple and being light for the world either. So it has to run through Jesus. And here's, here's how this works. Everything in the Old Testament is meant to renew our faith in God. When we say renew our faith in God, we mean renew our faith in God's promises. All of God's promises depend upon this guy who's introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right out of the chute, we meet this guy who is, comes to be known as the Christ. And of course, we know the Christ as Jesus. Right? Faith in God and in His promises depends on Jesus Christ. Everything depends on the Christ. <clears throat> and so... While we can look at Old Testament passages <clears throat> and we can, get, uh, we can get general principles like God hates injustice or God wants people to do good works, we can find uh, things that are historically analogous. Unjust corruption, weakened society. This message was uniquely for Judah. And Jude Judah was a very unique thing. Right? God called Abraham. God called Abraham. And he gave Abraham the promise. From you, Abraham, is going to come the Messiah who's going to bring salvation, not just to my people, but to the whole earth. Abraham's descendants, God ended up giving that promise to Judah, one of the 12 tribes. And in Judah, God gave it to David in Jerusalem, the city of David. So Jerusalem and Judah aren't just, they're not just nations. They have been called out by God 
for the purpose of bearing the torch that will bring light to the whole world. That's not Russia. That's not China. That's not France or Spain or America. And that's not you and me. This is a very unique message. But it applies to us because it points to Jesus. And Jesus In Jesus, by what Jesus did, we are welcomed into God's people to receive God's promises. So the only way that this reaches us is through Jesus. The only way this directly applies to us, I mean more than just like, again, like you can watch anything or read anything and be like, oh, you know what, that's kind of like my situation. This is actually a word for us because it reaches, because it's about Jesus and we are in Jesus. All right, so let's talk about Jesus for a second. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall say, Come, shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Now, we're reading the same passage of Scripture. How is that going to come about? Right? How is it going to come about that all the nations on the world are going to come say, God, teach us the Bible. And how is it that all the nations of the world are going to submit to God saying, let me tell you what to do? How is that going to be possible? With this group of people, this group of people who are forsaking the Lord, who are full to the brim of iniquity, who God's like, oh, you stink. How is it possible that this group of people is going to arrive at that place? The gap is too big between chapter 1, verses 2 to 31, and chapter 2, verse 2. I mean, how much smelting is going to happen? How much purification is it going to take for God's people to be like this. For this to work. Right? They're going to be smelted away. Human beings are sinners, right? All, all of our religion, this, right? it always tends to be hollow. Right? Sometimes you come to church and it's like, woo! And sometimes it's like, right? It just leans that way. It tends to be hollow. And all of our good works tend to be half-hearted. Right? Even when you're doing like the best thing that you're going, oh, I got stuff to do. Right? It always tends to be half-hearted. Sin, Swiss cheese is everything in our lives. So, how is this possible? Well, the only hope for Israel to fulfill its calling, and the only hope then for the whole world, the solution to all our problems, is going to depend on the fellow introduced in verse 4 as he, he who shall judge and who shall decide. He's going to have to come. And what do we learn about this fellow here in verses 2 to 4? If we look in verse 2, In the beginning of verse 3, it says that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. This is a reference to the the temple on Jerusalem and the worship of God. 
And the people are going to come and say, let's go there that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. That, this, this he is going to be a priest who establishes and exalts the worship of God and teaches people God's ways. That's the job of the priest. What verses 2 and 3 is describing is the job of the high priest to cleanse the temple, to order the worship of God rightly, and then to teach everybody the ways of God. This is the task that the priests were tasked with. So this guy is going to have to be the great, he's going to have to be a great and extraordinary priest. And then what kind of person is doing this? Verse 4, end of verse 3, out of Zion will go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Right? There's not going to be any war anymore. So not only is he going to be a holy priest, he's going to also be a righteous king who delivers God's word to the world, judges the nations, and puts an end to war. This fellow is going to have to come for this great vision to come about. And of course, we stand here on this side of the good news and we know that He has come. And we know that He has come because any full-blooded Jews here this morning worshiping the God of the Bible, right? We're here. The nations are flowing in. And the peoples are coming and saying, God of the Bible, teach us your ways. Teach us your paths. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit falls and the Word through the book of Acts goes out and welcomes in the Gentiles and the nations, that's this coming to be. Jesus has come and this, this, these verses have begun. And so we too who have no claim to these promises, we too may stand before the Lord saying, my sins are like scarlet. Can they be white as snow? And he says, yes. You may be washed and you are welcomed in to my kingdom to enjoy my blessings that I promised my people. Jesus Christ is the one true righteous Israelite. And God built all of the hopes that he promises people off of just him. And that's the good news. So if you're a bad person, like the people in verses 1 to 17, though your sins are like scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Though you're a Gentile, oy vey, right? Though you're a Gentile, you can come, be washed, and be welcomed. I was reading in Romans 9 this morning and Paul there says that the Jewish people read the prophets and they began to pursue righteousness as if it were something that would come by works. Right? They, they missed this point here in Isaiah 1 and 2. They, they saw the righteousness of God and they thought, we can, we can do it. We can get there ourselves. But Paul says, the righteousness righteousness can only be received as a gift. It's something that only Jesus did and only those who put their faith in him can enjoy. Only those people will be called righteous by God. They are made righteous. 
So though Israel tried, they tried to be righteous on their own, they were ignoring the point of this passage, was that it all depends on this great priest king who was to come. It all points to him and not us. All right, so now we, we who know the great priest, know the great king, and have been made righteous by simply believing in him, God looks at us and says, now you are righteous too because you are connected with my righteous servant. Now, when we try to do what's right, when we try to do justice, we are going to do it with humility, with the humility of faith. And let me just explain what that means. The humility of faith is this. My efforts to do what's right are not complete. And my efforts to do what's right are not even that good. So even though I'm here trying to help you ladling soup into your bowl or, or, or you know, bandaging your wounds or whatever, who you really need is Jesus and not me. And in fact, let me tell you something. You might think I'm special. I'm not. I need Jesus as well. So all of our righteousness, all of our attempts at justice have to come with the humility of faith that it's Jesus who we all need and it's Jesus who I need. But now that we are included in the people of God, now that we are here in Christ, we can receive the encouragement and the warning of this passage. So now that we've done all that work, we're back here to receive the encouragement and the warning of this passage. Here's the encouragement. Chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. God wants His children to worship Him and to do good. Right? This is what Jesus is trying to lead us in when we say, Jesus, be my Lord, and he, he makes us his disciple. He's trying to teach us his ways, teach us the path. This is what the Spirit is at work in our lives doing. And what we see, interestingly, is that in the very early church, this was their priority as well. Acts chapter 2. The end of Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has just fallen. It says, all who believed were together, had all things in common, were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to everybody who had need. And so they were taking care of the disadvantaged and the oppressed and the poor. In Galatians 2.10, Paul describes his first meeting with the pillars of the first early church. And they told him the one thing that they were most concerned about as he went after the gospel was, remember the poor. Remember the poor. And James says in James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. God wants his children to worship him and do good. And as we walk in the light, here's the encouragement. God's blessings are embedded in the light. God's blessings are embedded in the light. Here's what, here's what that means. When, what is it that the nations, that the whole world sees in the mountain of the house of the Lord that makes them want to come there and say, you teach us how to run our lives? What do they see? They see in verse 3, they see his ways his paths, his law, his word. That's the good thing that the whole world d desires. And when we walk in it, we have it. Right? And walking in the light is its own reward. We're not walking in the light in order to get something materialistic or earthly out of it. Walk in the light because then you're in the light. And the warning... 
the warning is back in chapter 1, verse 13. The warning that we read there of how God cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. We need to pay attention to the gap between religiosity and doing what's right. This gap exists in all of us. And we need to mind the gap, as they say in Britain. The gap is the distance between our claims to know God and our actual understanding of who He is and what He desires. So we're here, we're singing praise, good, right? We're offering tithes and offerings, good. But then what's going on in our lives? And if we are, here's the warning, if we are then far from God, we're walking in darkness. And again, like with the light, walking in darkness is its own reward. Have you ever been hiking at night without a headlamp? What is that experience like? You know what's weird? Not only are you tripping and falling all the time, you're scared. As soon as you shut that light off, if the moon's not out, you're like, oh, I don't have claws. I'm not very fast. That's what walking in the darkness is like. And I think that I also want to honor the, in this passage that this word is coming to the community of God's people. I think that especially for worshiping congregations, we need to be careful because we are capable of a higher density of hypocrisy. A higher density of hypocrisy, right? Because we say, how are you? You say, oh, I'm fine, praise the Lord. Right? Like you can just, the, the baloney meter is just going like this when people are all together in this manner. So we need to be very careful. We don't want to, again, reap the natural consequences of walking in the dark. Because when you're walking in the dark, you're walking in the dark, and also you are dark to the world. Nobody sees you. Where are you? Who are you? What are you doing? We don't want that. Something to think about as we close this morning. What would the prophets say about our religious practices compared with our righteous deeds? Now, right, thank God for Jesus on this point. I'm sure the prophet would want to say some very harsh things to me about it. And I'm so thankful for Jesus. But at the same time, right, we do want to honor Jesus. And so, Using this as an opportunity for reflection can be helpful. We do want to honor Jesus with our lives. Are we walking in the light of Christ? Oh, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. The hope of the whole world, the only hope that the world has, is all locked up in Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds the solution to every unhappy situation. And we in our worship and in our lives, we distribute that hope as light to the world. We walk by His light, our way is lit, and we ourselves become luminous. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. And not all who see that light will come, but God's aim with Israel, with Judah, and Isaiah 1, and with us today, is that all who do come will see Jesus and find this hope alive in us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here this morning because your heart 
is by your grace our heart as well. We want the world around us to see your light in us and to come meet the hope that we have, the only hope there is, the hope that is all locked up in knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet we confess to you, Lord, that we are very much like this, the people, the original audience of this text. We are people who entertain a gap between our religious our religious sometimes facade, our religious activity, and our concern for doing what's right in our lives. And Lord, we're not going to be perfect, and we don't have to be perfect, because Jesus Christ has done all that work and has made us righteous. But we do want to walk in the light, Lord, and we do want to honor our Lord. And so we ask your help now. We ask your strength We ask for your wisdom. We ask, Lord, that as well that you will follow and and go before our strength and wisdom with your grace and mercy. That you who supply seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply our seed for sowing and increase the harvest of our righteousness. For your honor and glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.